0: Mark chapter seven, and then I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, really complicated. You might want to look up Matthew 15 and put your finger in there. That's that's Matthew's account of the same story because I'm going to reference that in just a little bit. We are dealing with three particular stories, three narratives today. Um, one, one of them is uh, where Jesus comes across, possibly insensitive, maybe a little bit rude. If you've read ahead there might be some questions that come to your mind about how Jesus responds to this particular woman in the first story. Second story is about how Jesus responds to a, a, a deaf man who has got a speech impediment, and his actions seem a little weird, to be fair. And, and then ultimately, we have another story, like a repetitive story from chapter 6 of Mark, where Jesus feeds 4,000 people with loaves and fish, and it almost sounds like a rinse and repeat thing. And wonder why it's here so I'm going to give you before we start why these stories are here and what is the big idea of all these stories it's very very simple these stories communicate that God's grace is available to everyone everyone if you were here for our Romans series uh, Romans is the doctrine of how God loves sinners and a word that we use to talk about that is grace and uh, these stories talk about how radical God's grace is to the edges I mean, do the things that spill over the edges to the people that no one would ever, ever care for? And so these stories tell us that. And I have to conclude that maybe what the Holy Spirit wants to do with a text like this or stories like this is maybe communicate to somebody that decided to show up to church today, who in your mind you're here because it's Father's Day and we're happy that you're here because it's Father's Day. But if you were to assess your own life, and how you feel spiritually or this concept of God or grace or Jesus or whatever, you've concluded what you've done, where you've gone, who you are, is beyond the ability of God's grace to reach you. And you're confused. Right now you think that your problems are greater than his ability. And so this, these stories are for you. That if you're at a place where you think that God couldn't or shouldn't be for you, then you need to li- listen up and lean into these stories because it describes that kind of person. And i got to believe that there might be one, at least one of you, that are here with that struggle. So let's unpack it, uh, starting in the first story in chapter 7, verse 24 through 30. It's the story of a woman, a a Serophenician woman. Let me read it. And by the way, we're going to spend most of our time in this particular story and just kind of blast through the others because it's kind of a repetitive point, and you'll see why in a little bit. But uh, we'll spend most of our time here. And from there he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, and yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs." But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in, in bed, and the demon ha- had gone. Okay, so here's, here's what's going on in this day in the life of Jesus. Jesus has now kind of left this particularly Jewish climate and gone up north and kind of west in, into this area of, of, um, of Tyre. And sometimes when you watch locales of different movements of Jesus, they're just inconsequential. He's just moving to another region. I think there's way more specificness in where Jesus is going. Specifically, if you heard what we talked about last week, that when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're talking to him specifically about touching things that are unclean. But Jesus' point is to say, there isn't anything outside of a person that defiles the heart. The heart's got the problem. And it's always been an inside issue. And so you just deal with that. And, and so Jesus intentionally, in my opinion, moves away from a religious, like Jewish culture and into deep waters as far as the Gentiles are concerned. To the place where they would consider that's where the bad people are. If there's going to be something unclean and something dirty, that's where Jesus went. To, to make a point, Right? And the point he's making is that there aren't dirty places, there aren't dirty people, there, there is evil that resides in the heart of everyone, okay? And so that's why he, he goes there. And he's, removing, he's moving into this uh, pagan area, Tyre was, in the Old Testament was known for its wickedness, the, was the hometown of Jezebel, who was an enemy of God's, God's people. One particular uh, Jewish historian said the people of Tyre, this, this area, were Israel's most bitter enemy. So this, this is the environment that he's in. There's another reason why Jesus heads to this kind of scandalous place, and that is simply because he needs a break. He needs some R&R. In fact, verse 24 says he didn't want anybody to know that he was there, He didn't, but he couldn't be hidden. He, he went there specifically to rest. Uh, there were a couple times in Mark's Gospel so far that Jesus has tried to take his men and go to a place to, to uh, get a break. And I, I, I can totally imagine why. I mean, Jesus is as popular as anyone's ever been, thousands, and I'm not exaggerating, thousands of people have come to him, not with average things, but with every person's most important thing. Can you imagine that? Even in your household, if everyone has a crisis, it's, it's like red alert, right? Code red, and everyone comes to you with that story. Well, that's the people, everyone coming to Jesus. And by the way, all these people have an agenda. You're the king, you're the Messiah. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to get Rome out of our hair. You're going to make us a people, and we're going to have things the way we want it. So we have that expectation on you, and then circling in the background are all these religious leaders who want you dead. The pressure, the tr- pressure has to be enormous on Christ at this point in his, in his ministry life, and so I think Jesus is trying to lay low for a while to get out from under the magnifying glass and from all the expectations and demands. And so he is in Tyre, not in this place called Tyre, not to preach and not to do ministry, but simply to rest. And in the middle of this, like, serene possibility enters this woman with her number one issue, right? This woman enters the story. And, and uh, this woman is very special, in my opinion, and, and I'll describe it this way, for good reasons and bad reasons. Let me tell you why she's special for the bad reasons. Because there's hardly uh, a more unlikely person in all of the gospel narratives... Um, to do what she does here in the story. In fact, there's probably hardly any, any more unlikely person to come to Jesus expecting to get anything from Jesus than this particular woman. So let me explain to you, and it's the, it's the bad part of, of this woman. It, it's how people saw her. It's, it's who she was culturally. She was, one, a woman. And in our culture, doesn't fit, but in that culture, a second-class citizen. No woman would go to a rabbi ever and ask a question. That wasn't possible. They were viewed not equal as men. Woman, she's also a Gentile. You know, I don't have to tell you how Jews feel about Gentiles, right? They are also second-class citizens. Uh, The huge tension that exists between the Jews and the Gentiles, and in the Jewish mind, the Messiah, Jesus, wasn't coming for you. In fact, he's coming to get rid of you to establish us. And so that's what they thought. She was also from, uh, she was a Syrian Phoenician, which is a pagan place. If there's a way to describe a place that described unclean, <laughs> unclean, dirty, evil people, well, guess where she's from? And Matthew's account tells us she's a Canaanite woman. If you go back to Deut- Deuteronomy chapter 20, you can see what God said about the Canaanites, exterminate them. So, so there's, a, there's a history of animosity between the Canaanites and Israel. And so she has all these strikes against her. She's a woman, she's a Gentile woman, she comes from a pagan place, and she's a Canaanite. I mean, it's just overwhelming the amount of problems that she has, and yet, here she comes to Jesus. Now, as far as Jesus is concerned, no no self-respecting rabbi would have a conversation with a person like her. In fact, there was a particular sect of uh, Pharisees called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees, and they were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because whenever they saw a woman, they would cover their eyes and just run into stuff, okay? Okay? So so that's the that's how they felt about someone like her. Don't even look at someone like her. But in spite of all the obvious obstacles in her life, she has a big big need. Her daughter has an evil spirit. Her daughter's demon possessed. Now, I have no idea the condition of her daughter. But I can speculate a little bit if we, if we remember the story a few weeks ago from chapter 5 of Mark's account where Jesus runs into a man who is possessed by a legion of demons and the effect on his life and his existence was horrendous, like horrendous. So even if it's a percentage of how horrible it was, this little girl, you're, you're the mom watching this little girl carry the weight of all of that, the physical torment of that, the mental and emotional torment of that, the way it affects the family. Her need is huge and so she comes to Jesus. And she uh, she breaks all the standards. She comes to a place she shouldn't have come to a person she shouldn't have talked to at a totally inconvenient time. And she begs for help. Verse 26 says she begs. It's the, it's a uh, present active verb. It means that she's begging, constantly begging. It's not like hey Jesus, if you got a moment, I might help out my daughter. No, she was. Leaning into Christ, asking for help. In fact, Matthew paints a more dramatic sense of what she was doing when it says that she came crying out loud, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Like over and over again. Can you imagine? I'm trying to get some rest here. And this woman says, Lord, son of David, look at my need. Have mercy on me. And that's what she kept doing to such a degree that the disciples conclude she's a problem. And Matthew says, he, they asked Jesus, let's get rid of her. She's messing up this whole rest thing. So that's the scene. Now, f- stop for a second and capture in your mind, if you will, what you understand about Jesus and how he feels and treats people. If, if I were to get this whiteboard and put it up on the stage and say, well, everyone gets a turn, write down a word that describes how Jesus treats others. Well, we'd flood it with words like compassion and care and sensitivity and gentleness merciful. That's Jesus, right? Jesus has always been that way. Well, if you see Matthew's account of this story, how Jesus responds, looks at least insensitive, if not completely rude. Because verse 23 of 15 says that, that Jesus did nothing. In the midst of this dramatic moment with this woman's greatest need, and she's crying for mercy, crying for mercy, he says absolutely nothing. Have you ever been in a situation where you're trying to tell somebody something's important and they give you the cold shoulder thing? What does that say? They don't care. Doesn't it to us? Indifference. Like, can you just move on? Because I have other things to do. If we're not careful, we could read Jesus' response as indifferent and rude. But that's not our Lord, is it? We interpret scripture by scripture and Jesus is not. Any, he's anything but rude or insensitive. And so what is he doing? I I believe Jesus is doing something very similar to what he did to his own disciples in in Mark chapter 4 when they are on the sea. Remember in the storm in the boat and Jesus in the back of the boat asleep and the disciples make this accusation at least in question form. Jesus don't you care if we die? You're asleep and all hell's breaking loose up here. Don't you care And we know, we know from that story, we've studied that story, that Jesus is doing something for their faith, either revealing what they believed or what they thought of him or God's faithfulness. I'm putting it to the test, and I think Jesus is doing the very same thing for this woman here. He is giving her a lesson on faith. In fact, he's allowing her to express it, what's, what's in her heart. And so this woman does. Unlike maybe how I would respond if I told somebody of my greatest need and they just ignored me what it looked like, some of us might just kind of slink off with our head down, you know, like, oh, I guess that didn't go too well. She didn't do that. I love this woman. She gets even more persistent and she makes her case again. Verse 27 tells us Jesus' response. And he said to her, let the children be fed first for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's interesting. Um, How offensive does that sound to you? Pretty bad, right? Hey, I'm sorry. I know you got a need, but you're a mutt. And we got no time for mutts. That's sort of, if you're not careful how it might read. Let, let me explain to you a few things about what's going on here. First of all, this use of the term dog. In the Jewish culture, it was fairly normal to address Gentiles as dogs, okay? And, and they meant it in a derogatory way. You are a, uh, you're a scavenger you're a pest, um, you're wild, you're repulsive, you eat everything, you're the kind of dog we need to get rid of, is how most of them, that's not the word that Jesus used for dog here. The word that Jesus used was a common word used for small family pets. Like if you picture in your mind the word for puppy, that's how Jesus is, addresses it. Like you would have a puppy that sits under your table and you're, you know, chucking food at your, your cute little puppy. Well, you might be thinking, well that's that's good, but that's not great. Still calling her a puppy, and that's a problem. Um, but here's what you want, you've got to see in this, this statement that Jesus makes to the woman. He doesn't call her anything. He's just making a statement, and he's telling a parable. There's an analogy here. There's a spiritual reality here that Jesus is trying to tell her about, and her to respond to in this phrase. its It's an image that he's trying to get across, and it's the image that he says very clearly, uh, that he doesn't say in Mark, but he does say in Matthew's account in chapter 15, verse 24, when Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's what Jesus was trying to say here. I came on a mission. I've been sent by God to deliver on his promises to the people of God. I I came intentionally for Israel. That's, That's why I'm here. That's what that statement was meant to mean okay the reason why he's there is to care for them they've waited for the messiah forever that's why he's here but there's no confusion we have the advantage of all the scriptures we know that jesus is here and a rescue mission for sinners don't we john 3 for god so loved the world we know we know those things so clearly it's not talking about the exclusivity of israel just the timing of israel so you need to pay attention to what jesus says here he simply says israel first let the children eat first, which implies something, by the way, that there's going to be something for someone else. First means order. It doesn't mean exclusion. So Jesus is making a point that, yeah, but you want me now to do these things now. I'm here for this mission, and first comes Israel, not to the exclusion of the Gentiles, just just the full point that they come first. So let me, let me stop for a second and make a point, because I know this can sound real churchy and real Bible-ish and skip over our head. I think there's a lot of you in this room who could relate to this woman who are absolutely convinced that your stuff, your story, your limitations, your lack of understanding, your experiences, your secrets, your closet, all of those things are reasons why there's no way God could come to you. There's no way, he, no reason why he should. There's nothing that you can do on, to, 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 to make that different. There's no reason why God should listen to your cries after all, look at all these strikes against you. And you might conclude that, and if you're one of those who've wrestled with those thoughts, then you need to listen very carefully to how this story finishes, because it's it's incredible how it finishes. Look at verse 28. This is the woman's response to that statement by Jesus that let the let Israel eat first. He says or she says this, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her for the statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Okay, now let me just give you a snapshot again because I've said it, I'll repeat it. Remember who we're talking about here. A Gentile woman from a pagan place that's the enemy of Israel. She has no rights to anything. She should be excluded completely. And what's so unbelievable about this woman, what makes her special in the best way is that she gets it. She gets the gospel story and she gets God's intent. In fact, I would tell you, it's the only place in Mark's account of the gospel that anybody addresses Jesus as Lord, which is pretty impressive. She understands. When Jesus says, listen, let let those eat at the table before the dogs eat, she doesn't say, wait a minute, this is not fair. I, I deserve something better than that. I'm a, I'm a human after all. I deserve this or I deserve that. She doesn't argue. She simply says, I get it. Yes, you should. You did come for Israel. There is a promise to those people. Yes, I, I don't have any problem with that argument. But here's what she says next. But I also understand that that your mercies go beyond Israel. That's a mind blower for this woman from this place to be in this condition to go, I know what God's about. I know what you're about. And I know you're here for Israel, but you came give mercy to all. And I only want the crumbs. I want those things. To prove my point, there is an interesting use of one word in verses 27 and 28. It's the word children. When Jesus is addressing this woman um, and says, let the children be fed first, the word children that Jesus uses here is the word used for biological descendants. So Jesus is being very specific. Let this race, let this people let Israel eat first of my mercy, of my blessing, right? Her response is very interesting in what she understands. She doesn't use that word. She uses a way more inclusive word that talks about a household of people. Like what was talked about when you, when you had slaves and you had children and you had everybody in her household who served a master. She used that word and says, yes, but are, aren't we this child? Aren't we your children in this way? Very interesting how she describes it. One writer put it this way of how much she understood. The woman has a clearer understanding of Jesus' mission than anyone else we've met in Mark so far. She's the first person in Mark to get it and to engage Jesus in a constructive dialogue. She refuses to take no for an answer and she becomes like a female version of Jacob wrestling with the angel saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That's an interesting, interesting example. Matthew tells us how Jesus responded to her statement. One of only two places in all the scripture where Jesus commends someone's faith. And he says to her, woman, your faith is great. What she understood about the gospel and God's intention and his mercy, your faith is great. Only two places like that. Here's why her faith is great. Out of all the parables that Jesus tells us, she's the only one recorded in scripture that actually understands the parable. That's incredible. That's incredible. And here's what she knew. Here's what the parable says You're not worthy. As far as culture's concerned, you're a dog. Let's just be honest. You don't know anything and you're a nobody. You're an enemy of God's people. You don't deserve to be here. And she didn't have a problem with that. I, I get it. I'm not worthy. And if I'm a dog, then a dog has a master, and you must be him. That's kind of how she responded. I'm okay with being the dog, but dogs have masters. You'll be my master. And she knew Israel came first, but she also knew this wonderful truth. And that is this, that the super abundance of God's grace spills over the edges of his promises and, and falls on all who would believe. God's grace comes to anyone who would trust in Christ. It's not exclusive to one particular tribe or one particular bloodline. God's grace is to everyone. We're not here unless that's true. Right, church? God's grace to all. Her response is truly amazing. She understands that the blessing of God is so enormous. There's so much blessing that what Je- in what Jesus has done that there's enough for everyone. That's a pretty cool truth that she understood. The most unlikely of people. You get why this story is here now? If, if you look at this encounter he had with the scribes and Pharisees last week, Them describing places and things you don't touch because that's what defiles you. And Jesus makes the argument, the problem's not out there. The problem's in here. Then he goes on to say, and by the way, there isn't a special kind of, there's not a special kind of grace just for one and not for another. The the abundance of God's grace is for all who, who would believe. If you are one of those I talked to before, who considers that your story is bigger than God's grace, then you need to hear from this woman. This woman is painting the picture of the gospel narrative. You come with nothing, and you receive everything. It's, it's not different than anyone who's ever walked the planet. Nobody gets to stand before God and says, this is who I am. This is who my father is. We stand on our own two legs, and what he sees is sin. And the holiness of God judges sin. It is the grace of God, believed by faith, that frees you from that sin, and you are declared righteous in his eyes, and you go free. No matter where you've been, no matter who you are, no matter what your struggle is, it's available to you. That's what this, this story tells us. It is free and it's, a, it's abundant for you. Conclusion of the story is this woman is commended for her faith. You have great faith and her daughter is healed and I can just imagine how that testimony has grown. These last two stories make the point again and again. The story of God's grace available to all. So let me just read these accounts and make a few observations and then we'll do a, a quick wrap up here. We're going to pick it up in verse 31. This is Jesus dealing with the man who is deaf with a speech impediment. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Afatha, that is, be open. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Chapter 8. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And he took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. Seems like random stories, random accounts, but very, very, very simple of making the same point that God's grace just keeps going, going to the most unlikely of people. Here's the reason why this particular story of a deaf man follows this experience with this woman because the story that Mark puts together, like I told you before, Mark sorts out these stories, not necessarily in order, but to make a point about Jesus and the gospel, he puts this story right here to say what that woman just said and what she just experienced is true. God's grace goes to all. So here's this wonderful encounter that Christ has with this man. It looks really, really strange to, to actually see how demonstrative Jesus is. This man who is deaf, very dramatic, but, but I believe he's doing a couple things here. One is the, is the point, the big idea of this sermon is that he is now in this place intentionally doing ministry, not on R&R. And he's pointing out that miracles are, are a description of the kingdom of God to come. This is what I'm going to do. This is how it's going to be. The healing of this man demonstrates that the Gentiles are going to share in all these blessings of God. So it's, it's the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 35. It sounds almost like Isaiah's reading the story. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap with like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. That is God's kingdom come. And what he is saying by demonstrating this power over this man's particular circumstances is that God's kingdom has come to the earth. Not just to Israel, but to all people. To anyone who, who would believe. There's another thing that Jesus is doing, really tender, really powerful in this story is that I think Jesus is signing to this man who doesn't know what's going on. I would imagine... Uh, being of those having the struggle of no, no speech, right, or a speech impediment can't hear. That he's been kind of the unwanted center of attention for many years. Many years, like he's the. He's the butt of the joke. Jesus does something ten, very tender to take him away from the crowd to be by himself to do his ministry. Like you've been, you've been looked at too long. So he takes him to the side and he puts his fingers in his ears, saying, "I'm going to." Fix that. He touches spittle to his tongue saying, I'm going to open that. That's going to work. He looks up in heaven saying, hey, no confusion. Where this power is coming from? God's going to touch you. And then he breathes this deep breath, this sigh, which communicates very clearly that I feel your pain, man. I'm with you in this. I get it. It hurts. Jesus, all these other miracles, seems like he could just point and go wash and go do. And here, he stepped up to the need of the man. The, need, the man needed to know. And what Jesus communicated was the tender, affectionate touch of God's mercy in his his life. And, that, and that's what he did. God's grace came to this man in a very powerful, very poignant way that's undeniable. This third story, uh, the last one in Mark 8, sounds like a repetitive story, like the one in Mark 6. In fact, there have been some I read that suggested it was just really... A replication, but I don't believe that it is. There are many differences. Fewer people, more loaves, less leftovers, different place, Gentile land, on and on it goes. But I believe the reason why Mark puts it here in this context, in this order, is that he's telling us that this time, this bread of Jesus, this bread of life, now goes to all. You get my point? Into this Gentile place. That's the whole point of the sermon, really, is that God's grace is available to everyone. And you and I are invited to eat too, which is an incredible, incredible truth to remember. In fact, this superabounding grace of God is, is for you and all you have to bring is your need, right? There's a, there's a big difference between how people feel instinctively what I need to do to appropriate what God has done and they start down the road of cleaning up their act or sorting this out, or learning that. I'm just suggesting to you right now that what God has offered to you is something you will not get by your efforts. It comes by your faith. You trust in what he's already done, and it's already yours, as if it's finished. Do you understand? Complete and, and Done. And to these people, this crowd of people, this Gentile group of people that nobody should care about, sitting on the hill, being fed by the living bread of Jesus, is the illustration of what it's like for us now, some thousands of years later, to receive what we did not and do not earn, right? That's the reality of the story. There seems to be another illustration, or at least there's one I want to make, that sticks out in the text. Um, and I'm going I'm to make the point by asking a question. Are you you willing to go to the world like Jesus did? If Jesus leaves hometown, if he leaves comfortable, if he leaves the Jewish culture to go into God-hitting Gentile world, are we willing to go to the world like Jesus did? I know what you're thinking. Here comes the mission speech. Missions, we got missions coming. I'm ready. I'm not talking about missions. What do you think of when you hear world? probably think people not like me, or, or, or you think some other part of the world. You realize the world's come to your door, don't you? You're not surprised by this, right? You don't have to go anywhere, and the world's right here. All different types, all different stripes, all different cultures, all different creeds, all different faiths are all right in our, in our backyard, I know what we typically do, though. If I said to you, okay, how do we replicate the affections of Jesus and how he cared for those in in the world, we would probably instinctively think, well, let's let it be comfortable. Like, I'll go to people. The world, I'll define world this way. People like me, but, but don't believe. So they shop where I shop, and they eat what I eat, and they... You know, my kids are in the same school, and we vote the same thing. People like me, so the so the interpretation is not difficult. They just don't know Jesus. That's that's my world, and clearly we have to go to people like that too. But I don't think um, that's the point of this illustration. I think the the obvious point to make is is going to people who scare us, who make us angry who repulse us. That's where it gets really, really tender because our world has put up in front of us every reason in the world to hold our ground against groups. Hasn't it? Those people are killing innocence, hate. Those people say this about the word of God. Shut it down, shut it down, shut it down. I'm just suggesting to you, Jesus went to the scandalous people. He went to people that no one would care about, the dogs of society, less than human. And we're we're cool with going to comfortable places, but are we willing to go to the things that are scandalous? People that just kind of, if you're not careful, boil your blood, who do things that are unspeakable. Um, I thought about giving you a list of that, but I thought the Holy Spirit's better at it than I am. But let me give you the attitude behind the demeanor of Christ going. When he talks about compassion, watching the crowd in their hunger, the word compassion is the Greek word for entrails. It's the Greek word for guts. If there's a word that Mark could use to describe how Jesus felt, this this one's great. Jesus cared down to his bones. Gut-wrenching emotion. It's how Jesus expressed himself to these people Who were against his God, who were outside of his culture, who were on the other side of everything in a Hebrew mindset. Do you understand? It was scandalous. And I'm just suggesting to you the grace of God, if it's true, then let me just finish with this question. If you're okay, Christian, with the grace of God dripping off of Israel's table and landing on you with your issues, are you okay if it drops off the table and lands on your enemies? and that he uses you to do it. We better pray for that one, right? God, I thank you for the gospel we did not earn. I thank you for this wonderful, super abounding grace that overwhelms all that I am and gives me all that Jesus is. Thank you, thank you, thank you that it can never be taken away. Because it is anchored in Jesus, our Lord. The heart of Christ is convicting how he reaches out to those who are potential enemies. People who could scare us or make us angry or disgust us. And yet, the tension of this gospel story is that the grace of God is for all who would believe. So God, use us. Confront our bigotry, our prejudice, our fears, and let us see what you might be doing in this world with your gospel for the sake and the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.